It's the beginning of a new year, so we thought we'd talk to some industry experts about trends they're seeing for the upcoming months. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about trends for 2020 in the music business. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Vicki Nauman of Cross Border Works. Vicki, welcome back to the future of what? Thank you so much. I love this podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, we love having you. And this time we're having you because it is January 2020. So I thought you'd be a great person to talk to about trends things you think we're going to see in 2020, new stuff or, you know, continuations of old stuff or just anything. So what do you got for us? That's great. I'm so bullish about music. I feel really enthusiastic about it. And I think that part of that comes from being involved in this from the beginning of when music was disrupted back in 2000. And it's been 20 years. And I would say for the first eight to 10 years, probably in from 2000 to maybe 2008, 2010, most of the active discussions that we had were really revolved around, will people ever pay for music again? And, <laughs> right, and right. you know, every industry event, every <laughs> panel, every closed door meeting was that. And there was a range of opinions. Some major labels felt there would never be value in recorded music again. Others maintained optimism. But I've always felt like there was a potential for this industry to be bigger than it ever had been in the CD era because of the global reach and because fans would be empowered to be able to get access to everything as opposed to the olden days when we would have to go to the cutout bin and the import section to find something from France or from the UK. Right. So I can't look forward without looking backwards. And I think that for those first 10 years, it was really you know, there was lots of money in music from venture capitalists, lots of big failures, but it wasn't really just that people were pirating music. It was also that we didn't have the right operating systems. We didn't have mobile phones with APIs. We didn't have networks that would support streaming music. And then, of course, all the tangles around rights and royalties and business models. You know, there was just a, a decade of really intense learning. And then from maybe 2010, to 2014, that was really where I think streaming, people started seeing the real potential in streaming. And partially, I think that came about because it just became impractical for people to keep hoarding their music files that they had purchased from laptop to laptop and phone to phone. It didn't make sense. And so the cloud became something that was just really practical. And that also coincided with Spotify and their mission to create something better than P2P and a legal model. And it was really 2014 that 
everyone finally saw that streaming was here to stay and that it was going to be the most viable model going forward. But I think in 2015, that was the year where there was this oh moment of everyone also realizing we don't have any of the infrastructure that we have set up to be able to support streaming with these terabytes of data on microtransactions and fragmentation of rights and, you know, inadequate systems and the whole mess and the whole tangle that we've gotten ourselves into. It was a timing issue. It's a volume issue. And it was also just a modernization of the industry coming into an era of, of technological problems that are just really not able to be solved by humans, that we, we need systems and we need technology to help us out of that. So, you know, the last few years from 2014 up to the present, streaming and subscription streaming models all over the world are proving to now be this really important foundation for the industry. And I, I almost see this as like the equivalent of what radio used to be. The royalties may not be working for everyone, but there is money flowing and people are getting access to music. And as more and more people subscribe, the pie is getting bigger. And now I feel like the big challenges that I'm seeing, we need to really tackle and there are various efforts underway kind of fall into a couple of categories. And these are exactly what I work on in my business. So, you know, these are things I feel very passionately about. And one is getting all the rights and royalties and legislative changes and everything in place to do a correction on making sure that we can actually pay everyone whose music has been used in digital environments. And so things like Music Modernization Act and private solutions and government mandated solutions, all of these things are going to help solve problems to better get money flowing. But, you know, that's really painstaking, difficult work, and it's so important. And I spend a lot of my time and energy on it. But what I get really excited about is the other thing, that, which is, I think, lighting up digital music in other environments, in adjacent industries, and coming up with new business models as we're cleaning up the industry and as we have a foundation for music revenues, what are these innovative things that we can be doing with music? And so I look at industries and I look at like what short form video and user generated, you know, that's exploding. TikTok and other short form video platforms. This is a really, really exciting vertical. I also look at things like gaming, you know, and the gaming industry has been a little out of reach of music and you know gaming the industry is bigger than music and film combined wow you know it's massive mm -hmm. and for the last 10 years i've been looking at this industry and saying look they can have free to play games or very low price games and in-app purchases and companies are making billions of dollars why aren't we doing more right and that's starting to happen right and an example of that i think is when we had marshmallow do uh, set in Fortnite. Right. He was able to immediately reach 10 million people in that set. Yes. That opened up a lot of industry people's eyes that I don't think they ever were able to really comprehend from a business model standpoint. How would we make a gaming model work for music? But that was a really important goalpost, I think, for the industry to see. 
I'm also working with a company called Beat Saber, which is a VR game. And we have licensed music packs and we've got Imagine Dragons, Panic at the Disco and Green Day in there, as well as Monster Cat and a handful of other custom songs with more in the pipeline. And we're selling millions of dollars of music. Wow. And so for me, this is where I get really excited about the future of the industry is these adjacent industries of gaming or devices or the UGC and the different kinds of video platforms. These are all things that are just right next to the music industry. And I feel they're all really poised for music to blossom. Right. And I think it's just a matter of coming up with the right business model, the right way for startups or younger companies to be able to dip their feet in and prove to the music industry that they can do something, that they can deliver value, and then getting the music industry to embrace these new models. But what I've learned in the last year through working with this gaming company is also that almost every single label now has someone, and it's usually a young person, (laughs) who's tasked with understanding and trying to help them navigate these emerging use cases. Interesting. And that I think is really good sign because you can't expect, you know, a senior executive who has never ever used TikTok to understand what the value of TikTok is. He or she needs to talk to their kids or you need to have younger people who are more immersed in these technologies to be able to help champion them inside the labels and publishers. Definitely. And I think also what's really changed and shifted in the music industry in the 13 years that I ran on independent record label, that whole shift happened from we are music companies. We know how to sell music. We put music on, you know, these things called LPs and and CDs and cassettes and we sell them and through this specific retail chain and that's our business. And it's gone from that business model to this completely other exploded business model in the last 20 years. Exactly. And I think that's the thing is, you know, you're right that it's it's harder, especially for us older executives, you know, to keep their finger on the pulse of exactly what these things look like. But I think the fact is that everyone has realized that that is the future yeah. of selling music. It's not going to look like that one retail chain that we knew for 80 years or whatever. Exactly. When we think about that era, when we had the retail chain, if you think of the streaming services now they're the like the the mothers of all music shops you know that you can get anything and listen to anything mm-hmm. but when i look at the adjacent industries you don't necessarily always need to have or nor do you want to have the entire catalog of music that's ever been created that's really important for the value proposition that music has created of saying you know pay one low price and get access to every song that you could ever want. But in these adjacent industries, you don't necessarily need that. Right. And in fact, in some, especially when there's storytelling, like you think about the podcast vertical, you know, you don't necessarily want the biggest pop hit in your podcast because it's probably going to detract from the story that you're telling. If you're doing a story about something that happened in the 90s, you're probably going to want music that's in a music bed and that's going to set the tone or you might want music that's more about a mood. Same thing in games. You don't need everything in a game. You might need 
a small, really curated collection of songs. And so I feel like this gives music, it's not only a new way to earn revenues, but it also gives music more pristine listening environment Mm -hmm. when you're immersed in a game or you're listening to a podcast or you're watching a series on Netflix and you hear music in a very foreground type of listening experience Mm -hmm. as opposed to a streaming service where you are oftentimes listening to that while you're cooking and you're working and you're doing other things around the house or your car and you're driving to the office. And I really think that one of the things that's missing it right now is that we do have this great access model of being able to listen to music. But if you have everything programmed into your Sonos or your Bose connected speakers or your Alexa, and you're just asking to play 90s hip hop, you don't necessarily even know what the name of the artist is or the name of the song. But when you're really in an immersive environment, you know, and you're intent on watching a movie or a series or playing a game, you really hear the songs. Mm-hmm. You really, really find yourself, those songs resonate a lot more than, than I think they do when it's just a kind of a casual listening environment. Right. And those spaces give people the opportunity to do more curation. So you really are listening to sort of just the right song for that situation, whatever it is. And also that's how people do discovery in a more significant way, I think, than just playing, yeah, say play 80s hip hop or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think ultimately music fans, we need to discover music, but then we need to have places where we can go deeper. Mm Mm-hmm where we can find out more about the artist and that we can hear more of the artist's work and that we can really not just hear something as, as one of many in a playlist, you know, music fans need to be able to hear a lot of music, but then have a way to experience music that they really love in a different kind of environment. Absolutely. And that's partially why I think vinyl has maintained its appeal because you don't want 50 million songs on vinyl, but you might want a collection of 500. Right. Absolutely. And I think some of the services that are coming online this year and in the future, the ones where they're focusing on credits and they're focusing on connectivity. So, you know, you can find out who produced your favorite record and then you can click on that person's name and you see all the other stuff that they've produced. Like, to me, that's really exciting that's a new trend for 2020 that I'm really excited about because I think it is going to add to that discovery part that we're looking for in this new environment. Yeah, I think it is too. And I think that we have had a, a decade of just a fire hose of right. news and music <laughs> and everything, you know, coming at us. And I'm kind of hoping that we've almost gotten to the point of being numb to that and that we are getting so much information that we don't necessarily want that we don't have information that we do want. And so I think there is value in thinking about how do we as consumers of not just music, but anything, how do we pursue the things that we are passionate about? And it's the same channels as what is coming at us as a fire hose but they're probably a little bit more niche. They might require a little bit more effort, 
but you care about these things. So it's not asking too much because it's serving a need that I think is just really innate in, in humans. Yeah. And it's funny because I feel like people my age, our age, like I certainly remember as a kid, there was a lot of sort of creation of your own tribe based on music, Yeah, you know, like, oh, those are my people because we listen to this particular type of music and we love these people. And oh, those people over there, the weirdos who listen to something that we don't like, you know, like, oh, they ha- they listen to hair metal or something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we really... never like anyone who listened to hair metal. Exactly. But... And we used to define ourselves by the music that we listened to. And I feel like there was a point at which we kind of lost that because it was a fire hose, right? Because it was just everything all the time. But I do think that people have a desire to be sort of tribal and and recognize their people and their music. And I feel like that's starting to happen again. I feel like I'm seeing that more and more with the fact that you can point to things. You know, everything is not just of equal value anymore. You can actually say, oh, these are the things that I like over here and these are the things that other people like over there. And that's okay. Like, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and and we've also seen things like the phenomenon of BTS, Mm -hmm. you know, just just break every rule in the book, you know, of, you know, that you have to sing in English if you want to appeal to an American audience and that, you know, things that work overseas or, you know, how will that culturally translate? And it does. And I feel like that's so exciting to me because it really does show the global nature of music. And it also just demonstrates that a lot of those things that artists have certainly been told for years of how they need to create a fan base and create a sound, that a lot of those rules don't necessarily apply anymore. And so there is such a wide range of choices and alternatives for artists who want to make their way and for finding fans no matter where they are in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, which does make it really exciting, I think, moving forward. It's hard, though. I mean, it's it's tough because I think for artists, you know, like if you have so many different choices, then I think, well, what's your guiding light? What are your guiding principles then? You know, and I think that we are kind of developing a whole new series of playbooks of people who don't even have a label and others that are young artists and they find a huge following on YouTube like Lindsay Sterling and are able to have connectivity with this fan base that feels really, really attached to her. And she's done that all on her own. Mm hmm. And, you know, people oftentimes look at Chance the Rapper and say, well, you know, there's an example, but there's only Chance the Rapper. And and I feel like, well, you know, he was the first that was really visible, but there's a lot of people that are choosing their path as an artist or a songwriter. And for some, if they want to be a part of a traditional label deal, if they really find a team that they think is going to work with them, that's great. If people want to go on their own and have their own team, that's great too. But I think that what we've got are now platforms that are at global scale that have been able to find a way of congregating music lovers and music creators in the same place. And when I try to think about what this industry will look like, you know, after the end of the next 10 years, I think it's going to be dramatically different than what it is now, just simply because of 
how many young independent artists and songwriters that are fiercely dedicated to their own creative potential and they're just creating a new blueprint for themselves. Totally. I think that's completely true. And I also think that one of the awesome things about this period right now is that we are finally seeing tech catch up with where we're at in the music business and being innovative and exciting. I feel like sometimes the music industry, and I'm sure all industries are like this, you know, I wouldn't want to say that we're the only way, but I think people, you know, it's like once they find something that works, they're like, okay, don't touch anything. It's working. Right. Like don't mess with it. Exactly. And I feel like people are starting to mess with it and they're starting to say, well, like, okay, well, we've had several years of Spotify looking like a black screen and giving you the experience that it gives you. What if it looked different? What if it sounded different? What if it was delivered in a different way? You know, I I feel like we're, we're starting to have companies come online that have AIs that are doing amazing things. We have companies that are making it possible for artists to get a hold of their own money in a completely new way where, you know, you used to have a have to have a label or you used to have to have a team or something. And now you can sort of collect that money yourself. Yeah. You know, just so many exciting things coming online right now in terms of tech, because I feel like tech finally got it. I feel like for a long time, tech was like, oh boy, the music business, that's a new pool we haven't played in before. Here's a bunch of stuff that you guys don't need. Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, oh, yes, I, we can figure out all sorts of great things to do with music. But wait, what are you talking about rights and right, right, royalties? Exactly, like, right. like, that doesn't make any sense at all. This is just promotion. I, I agree. And I think that we're also seeing, you know, this tech industry and music industry, as people have gone back and forth between these two industries a little bit more, I think there's more cross-pollinization of understanding that music companies and, and technology companies speak really different languages. They think about problems differently. You know, they have different objectives, even though they might share a same goal of having music in a digital application that gets people really excited. Everyone's excited and can buy into that. But the path to get there is really, really divergent on these two industries. But we're starting to see some things really start to happen. I am always going to be someone who's hopeful for startups to be able to do some things with music and innovate with music. And it doesn't always mean that you need to create a service. It could be a new rights management platform. It could be a touring platform. It could be an end consumer service. But I think there's so much incredible energy coming out of the tech sector that it's just really like you just kind of have to match make the interests so that they're compatible. You know, if you're an unfunded music startup and you don't think that you want to go and raise a huge amount of money, then don't try to build a Spotify-like service because that takes a lot of money and a lot of tech and a lot of infrastructure. But there are lots of other things you could do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And But I think people are starting to get that, you know, that it doesn't have to, you don't have to just be like, okay, we're coming into the marketplace to challenge all these streaming services. But it's like, what if we took what people are doing, but did it in a different way and, and you know, modified the stuff that's out there in a way that's exciting for users. And I, I just think that that is so smart and so exciting because, you know, like I said, it, you know, it used to be the ain't broke, don't fix it right. kind of model. And now it's the kind of, 
ooh, we're already disrupted. What can what more can we do to disrupt and and create and add? Because it, it does seem additive at this point, which is exciting. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I also think that people are now getting attached enough to their streaming services that they use that I don't think there's a massive threat anymore that people are going to stop subscribing and paying for streaming services. I just don't see that as a viable, right. Right. You know, fear. Yeah. But I think the things that we need to layer on top of those streaming services that are not going to cannibalize the streaming services, but they are going to likely be much more compatible. You know, if you're a new entrant, you want to compete with ByteDance, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, no, probably (laughs) don't, or you probably would not be advisable, but you could create something that's different and that isn't going to compete in that same pool because that's a pretty treacherous pool to be swimming in. But I think the music industry is very counterintuitive to a lot of technologists. They don't understand the nuances. There are so many things that are um, unique only to music of, you know, rights fragmentation or how licensing works or copyright laws or the things that no one really thinks about until you're deep in it, like problems with metadata. And I think that it's a challenge to build a really, really elegant music service and music experience but like, don't go there, you know, let the companies that are out there really carry on. And there's a lot of really wide open lanes for innovative companies to come in and create something new that we haven't even thought of. Right. Exactly. Well, on that note, Vicki <laughs> Nauman of Cross Border Works, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Thank you.
That was Plus 81 by Deerhoof. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Josh Berman of Concord. Josh, welcome back to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. So I am doing a little episode here about trends for 2020. And I wanted to talk to you because you are a person who is immersed daily in the streaming and digital (laughs) community. Mm -hmm. And I thought you might have some thoughts about, you know, where we're at and where we're going. I mean, you know, we've had a lot of growth in the industry in the last few years. Things are sort of humming along. Any thoughts? Sure. Yeah. Well, it is certainly a fascinating time to be working in the music industry overall, and I think particularly in the recorded music industry, which is my corner. It's particularly interesting because we're past the point of cautious optimism because it's now a fifth year of of growth. Mm-hmm that there's almost now a sort of bullishness, particularly at the majors, which is exciting and and that's awesome. But with the artists that I represent, which are much more the middle class, not the top 40 ilk, I still think there's a lot to figure out in the streaming era. Um, And we have to keep reminding ourselves that this is very much still the birthing pains of it. It's it's very early in this sort of type of, of consumption or this new model of consumption. You know, as more and more people adapt to streaming and they subscribe to streaming services or just, you know, download the apps, that's less and less people that are buying physical product or downloading, of which, you know, Concord certainly was heavily reliant on and to a degree still is. But the type of music that is not pop or commercial country or, you know, some of these other styles of music that just dominate the streaming culture the type of consumption is not someone playing the same song over and over and over and over over again. Like I did when I was 14 or 15 years old listening (laughs) to to pop music. Right. So it's really interesting of like figuring out ways. I think the big thing for us particularly, and I think in general, a lot of indies and, you know, I think any marketers really trying to figure out is how do you build a fan base off of these platforms? I think that's, you know, I think that's just critical at this point because, it's one thing to get on a big playlist and, and and get a bunch of streams, you know, in a short span of time, but you're not necessarily building a fan base off of that. You don't know how the fan is actually engaging with the track on the service. So I think big trend certainly for us at Concord and in, in streaming and digital marketing is finding every way possible to actually build an, an engaged fan base off of Spotify and Apple and Amazon. And then certainly find ways to drive them onto those services as well as any other revenue driving platform, whether it's D2C tickets and anything else. So I think that's probably number one. And I think a lot of people are thinking the same thing, especially since labels are happy with the revenue growth, especially labels with big catalogs. But at the individual artist level, it's still an issue that it's still hard to have a sustainable career if you're in that middle class. So I think finding ways to build these fan bases that these artists can then take with them wherever they go for the rest of their lives is the number one mission. So whether that's through combination of socials and and content marketing and paid advertising, any possible tools that, that we can find to develop that direct fan connection is the number one goal, not getting on playlists or driving as many streams as possible in a short amount of time. Well, I think you're right. And I think that something that's really interesting that I feel like is sort of a trend for 2020 is we sort of have had it with the notion that, as you said, playlisting is like a marketing plan, 
right? Right. <laughs> like getting playlisted is not a marketing plan. Like that can't be how this works. And I think what's interesting is that there's so much room for growth in the world of streaming and digital. And, you know, things that haven't really happened in the past, I think, are starting to be seriously considered. Like how are streaming services diversifying from one another? You know, how are they differentiating themselves? And they're going to have to start offering different things. I mean, We've already seen that Spotify's put a huge investment into podcasting, but how are they going to leverage that? Like, where are they going to take that? Right. I think it's like we're really poised for an interesting moment because it's not just a question for the labels of like, how do we build fan bases for our artists without just relying on playlisting as a marketing plan? But how do the services start to come into the marketplace with some more offerings for us? Yeah, absolutely. And the conversations that I have every day with the various people and teams at the at the streaming services, right now, they're essentially all offering the same thing. Right. With very, very slight, you know, variations. Right. And there are pathways, and I've talked to them specifically about these pathways that would help them differentiate themselves. Certain services have already kind of started to lean in or or created that pathway. Spotify with podcasts of which it's great. I love podcasts, but there's a potential that it could actually devalue the music side of the service, which I'm keeping an eye on, to say the least. Right. Amazon, obviously, they're so far and away ahead of everyone else in voice. Clearly, they've got that. And what can they do with voice-activated you know, listening to really differentiate themselves? What happens around the holidays for our catalog on Amazon is fascinating because I think we're pretty much on par with a lot of other rights holders as far as, you know, the market share of Spotify usually being, you know, the number one source of streams, you know, followed by, depending on the artist, some variants of YouTube, Apple and Amazon. But come holiday time, Amazon just skyrockets up and it's because all of these people with Alexa powered devices saying, play holiday music, play classic Christmas music, right. play music to wrap presents to, whatever right. the utterances they're saying. Right. You know, that's a huge boost and their market share just explodes in the fourth quarter. So what are other ways that they can use to drive to drive that around seasonality or, you know, whatever marketing levers they can pull through all those millions of people who have Alexa powered devices. Right. You know, obviously YouTube has Google, which is more data on human beings on this planet than any other company in the world, maybe outside of Facebook. And how are they using that algorithmically? I mean, it's such a chaos platform and it's such a creator platform. There's not a ton of marketing they actually offer. It's always about, well, what are you doing? What is the creator doing? And, you know, not all of our artists are PewDiePie. <laughs> so it's it's hard to, it's like creating a whole other second job of just like constantly uploading and engaging with fans and, you know, optimizing the algorithm. So these, you know, all these services have these lanes and, it, you know, I think it's up to us to become experts at all that stuff and make sure we're showing our artists best practices or management or whomever is leaning in on those things. What's interesting to me for 2020, and I'm really excited to see what happens, and I hope things really start to move, is what these services are doing around catalog. Mm, yeah. Now all of the major DSPs have people or you know a person that is in charge of looking after catalog, which you know, certainly it's the lion's share of streams and revenue for any record label that has a catalog. And only just now have all the services actually hired teams to look after that content. There's not a whole lot to point to yet. I mean, most of these people got hired, you know, in the 2019 calendar year. And there's been a few marketing levers and a few editorial or 
marketing drivers that have been created from some of the services, but it's still very early days. Right. And you know, something we've run into a lot, particularly at Concord, because we work with a lot of legacy artists who have been around for a while, but still want to release new music. What do you do with a legacy act that has hits, you know, over, over the last three or four decades that wants to release new music? Where, where do you put that person either in a playlisting or marketing standpoint at the services? And it, to date, no one's really figured it out. Right. And I'm really hoping that the teams at Amazon and YouTube, Spotify, Apple can really help position these legends and push the new music to the users in conjunction with the catalog. Yeah. I think that's something we're going to see more and more of in, in 2020 because now all of the various DSPs are positioned to do that. It's just a matter of pulling the trigger and, and figuring out ways to push the new stuff to those catalog fans. Absolutely. Another thing that I have been seeing in 2019 that I think is going to be interesting for 2020 is everybody got really interested in credits. Right in proper accreditation and attribution of people who played on records, people who produced and mixed and engineered records, you know, all of these things. And these services are coming online in 2020 that are just going to make that information available in a really big way. And, you know, speaking of Amazon with their Echo Alexa device, people are going to now be able to say who played drums on this song. Mm -hmm. And all of that information is going to be available. So I feel like that's a whole other avenue of potential monetization and just increased connectivity with people's catalogs. We don't even know how, what that's going to do or how it's going to manifest, but I think it's in the pipeline. Totally. I and mean, there's a whole other window opening up in, so I would say, sort of like two different realms. You know, One would be with the credits as far as what is the version of liner notes in 2020 on these DSPs of which you know, certainly there's a more than niche audience that would be interested to know that stuff, you know, especially in this era where there's hip hop tracks that have like 30 writers on them. Like, you know, I think these people deserve to have their names shown somewhere where it's not buried through four clicks, right. but it's easily accessible, you know, as far as the creators, you know, having, being able to be seen and heard, you know, I'm a huge jazz fan and it's always bummed me out that like, you can't see who the side musicians are in any of these right. these records that are right. on these services. That's really important. And there's a lot of companies out there that are, you know, positioning themselves to do that stuff, whether it's, you know, Jaxta, there's a there's a couple of new ones. Bookshelf is one that I've seen. There's another one called Liner Notes where they're basically just going to become a back end for this stuff and any of the DSPs can just pull all of that information in. The other one that I think is, you know, everyone seems to be getting ready for the day that all of this stuff can actually be delivered through the supply chain to the services mm. is creative metadata. So that one level deeper of richer metadata, I know it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but it's going to make a huge change in both the way consumers can experience the music and, and find the music, as well as from a revenue standpoint, because it's going to put certain tracks that have really clean and really rich metadata ahead of the game as far as it being surfaced up through the algorithm or through voice utterances for smart speakers. So, you know, I know all the majors are working on this. I know there's a bunch of services that are, are coming online that can help do like AI generated tagging. So instead of just the normal artist name, album title, track title, whatever's normally being fed through the supply chain to the services, you're now going to have a whole second layer of BPM, danceability, major or minor key, positive or negative, heavy or light, 
good for jogging, good for yoga, good for workout, all, you know, all that stuff is now going to be put and tagged into the music and sent through to the services, which will get picked up through the algorithm, get picked up through when people are listening to certain styles of music and you'll get fed more like that. So I think that's, you know, as soon as all the services can accept that information and they're all toying with it now and figuring out how to put it into their various services, I think it's going to be a windfall of discovery and that should help. I would like to think that would help democratize things even further, but of course, you know, the majors are the ones that have the money to invest in building these systems first. Right. The good news is there are some independent companies out there that are doing this and, you know, anyone can use them. I mean, there's a, there's a fee, but it's nominal. There's one I really like out of Singapore called Musio that we've done some tests with and it's really cool. You can just drag and drop a YouTube link into their search queue and it'll immediately just tag it with five or six of their basic genre and mood tags. It's really cool. So oh, wow. I think that's another really big one for next year is, is kind of optimizing who the song is for, what time of day, seasonality, all that kind of listening to help surf some more. Right. I mean, the fun part of all of that for me is that this really does help consumers with discovery. And I think in the early days of Spotify and the streaming services, I got really stressed about it because it made me feel like no one's going to do discovery anymore. They're just going to let Spotify feed them their like your daily discovery or whatever. And like they're just going to listen to a playlist. Totally. But I actually think that it has not been true. I think over the last few years, we've seen that people are taking the tools that are developed and are actually using them for discovery and they're going down rabbit holes and they're being like, oh, I like this. What is this other thing? Like, here's a link. And so I think that, you know, we could be poised for, like you said, even further democratization because of the new tools that are available for discovery. Totally. And that's, I think, one of the biggest things in general, but specifically for us at Concord, because we do have a lot of either legacy acts or styles of music that appeal to a slightly older demographic, whether it's Americana or folk singer-songwriter or things like that, where, you know, it's not, our core audience isn't like 18 to 24, it's maybe, you know, 25 to 35 or 35 plus, As, you know, especially if I think about like my parents, you know, when they go into these services, you know, my dad has like Amazon Unlimited, when he goes into the service, it's overwhelming. He's like, I just want my library. Like, this is too much. It's, <laughs> right. it's too much choice. It's too, you know, it's, it is, it's overwhelming. So, finding ways to make sure that it doesn't feel overwhelming and that using the, the user data that they have on you or finding ways to make it super easy to cater to like, I just want to listen to Emmylou Harris's Red Dirt Girl and give me everything that's easy to find that's around that or whatever. Right. That's going to be a huge change to make it as low touch as possible. Absolutely. The problem is, you know, there's 40,000 songs a day going up on these services. So <laughs> right. how do you create that filter and I know, you know, all the services do it as the more and more you listen, the more you like, the more you skip, like it'll cater to you. But how do you make it first entry point to not feel overwhelming? That's that's a huge challenge for, for all the services. Absolutely. And on that note, Josh Berman, the SVP of Digital Marketing, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What? It's my pleasure. Thank you, Portia.
That was Noise Won't Stop by Shy Child. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Russ Krupnik of Music Watch. Russ, welcome back to The Future of What? Thank you for having me back. Always nice to talk to you. So I wanted to talk to you because you're, you know, a guy who's got his finger on the pulse of the music industry. And I am putting together an episode about trends in the music industry for 2020. So I sort of wanted to pick your brain and see what you think we've got coming up for this next year. And I know that you recently published something about the last 10 years because it's been, you know, from 2009 to 2019 has been a 10-year period of massive change for the industry. Yeah, it was really fascinating because we have reports from from a couple of decades ago. And and when I pulled up the report from 10 years ago, it's really shocking how much the industry has changed. You know, 10 years ago, two-thirds of the music that we were acquiring was not paid for. (sighs) It was either pirated or we were still ripping a lot of content off of CDs or we were sharing things on hard drives. It was a little bit of stream ripping, but imagine that two-thirds of the content that was coming into your collection, you didn't actually pay for. That is crazy. And now dial forward, and most of those folks are probably paying for a subscription. At least one. At least one, if not more. Yeah, and you know, everything from devices to, you know, 10 years ago, 60% of us were using iPods. And we used to do surveys, and people couldn't have imagined a world where they wouldn't have had a phone in one pocket and an iPod in another. (laughs) And, and, you know, now 90% of Internet users are also using a smartphone. And as we know, you know, so many of them are, are using that device to stream. So, you know, it's as you go through all of the trends, it's just absolutely amazing how much things have changed in what's a relatively short period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's shocking. And it's so funny because 2010 for me was the rock bottom, right? I was running a record label and I was like, we're in a hole and I don't know if we're ever going to get out of it. And the idea that we fast forward nine years and everybody's not only flourishing, but been flourishing for several years and things are like kind of looking up and, you know, the tech industry has really caught up with where the music industry is. And the reason I say that is because certainly in 2010 and the few years after that, I was constantly getting bombarded with people who are like, I've got an idea for a new app that does something that you totally don't care about. Right. And I was always like, what? You know, and now suddenly it's like everywhere I turn, there are people who are coming up with tech solutions to problems that we genuinely have in the music industry. And it's so exciting. You know, when I was writing the blog, we didn't, I didn't include this, but a thought came to mind about David Pakman, who, who used to run eMusic and has been involved in a lot of investments. And I remember David saying 10 years ago, nobody wants to invest in music. It's a terrible category. Take your money and invest somewhere else. You know, now we've got, you know, if you think about the investment pools that the labels are putting together and the amount of money that flows into the industry, the amount of money that the 
large companies like Amazon and Apple and Google are investing in the music industry. I mean, just another way of looking at how much things have changed just in the past 10 years. Right. And another thing that's changed is that all of a sudden, you know, for 80 years or something, investors understood that songwriting copyrights had value, but they suddenly discovered that master rights copyrights have value. And so suddenly there's all these people investing in master rights, which is like a whole new thing that we never could have seen in 2009, 2010. And I I think, you know, just closing out the decade from an industry that was really in the doldrums not that long ago, we've now seen three consecutive years of sales growth. And you know what, kind of as a lead in to talk about next year, I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that revenues, at least in recorded music and probably in live as well, I don't see any reason why we couldn't see yet another double-digit increase occurring in revenues for 2020. Wow, that's awesome. So you've let us in. So the door's open. Let's go through. What do you think? You know, let's stick on that revenue theme just for another moment. You know, I, I think if you project out from a revenue standpoint, at least for recorded music for the U.S. for 2020, it's highly likely that we'll only need maybe 10% growth to get over $12 billion in recorded music revenues for next year. And, you know, if you think about it, that's going to be the first time the industry has hit that number since 2005. Basically, like in 15 years, things have not been that great from a revenue standpoint. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's a, a terrific milestone to kick off the conversation. And, you know, certainly by, you know, sometime in next year, three out of four of the industry dollars are going to be coming from paid subscriptions. And, in the U.S., we'll probably hit, you know, my guess is somewhere around 80 million or so paid subscribers, possibly a few more. So, you know, if you take a look at just some of the core revenue statistics, I think things have been good the past couple of years. And, you know, my guess is that next year is going to be equally good. Yeah. I remember at the beginning of 2019, one thing that I really saw as a big blow up change in the industry landscape was independent distribution. And I think I've been totally right about that. I would just like to pat my own back Mm -hmm. for a moment about, because we're really seeing a lot of changes there. But then, of course, there were some crazy things that happened, like the whole direct shot fiasco that have probably hastened the demise of certain channels quicker than would have happened and have also bolstered, you know, some alternative companies that are out there also more quickly than would have happened. So it's like a whole bunch of things sort of came together to affect that. No, absolutely. You're absolutely on target there. So looking at your piece, the, your blog post, I, guess. I love it that you credit Tom Silverman at the beginning because I remember sitting in an A2IM meeting. It was like one of the very early A2IM Indie Week. I mean, I don't think they even called it Indie Week. It was like a get-together. And Tom was showing us these slides. Ah about the music industry. And he was just so passionate and so excited. And I remember it was really hot and there was no air conditioning. It was June in New York City and everyone's just sweating to death. And we're all looking at Tom like he was bananas. Mm-hmm. We're just like, what are you talking about? He's like, look at the growth that we're going to experience in the next <laughs> next 10 years. Yeah. We're, we're all just like, you are crazy. But he was kind of like for those, you know, for, for those of us who are old enough, he was kind of like the Carl Sagan, you know, totally. where we're going to have billions and billions. Yeah. You know, Sagan was about stars and, and Tom was talking about subscribers. And, you know, I think certainly Tom had his finger on the pulse really early. I mean, we've not only seen that in the developing countries, but 
even though our research doesn't do a whole lot on the international scene, it's not hard to see that a lot of the growth can come from Asia, from Africa, from South America, from the Middle East. So, you know, beyond what we're seeing in some of the numbers from the RIAA or IFPI, you, know, you can look at territories that have been somewhat underserved by the music industry over the past couple of decades, really taking off, you know, in the coming years. You, know, you see labels opening up offices, you see the streaming services launching there. So I think that's going to really validate what Tom was talking about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing it at Music Biz. You know, we just finished our call for proposals and we're reviewing them now. And we have several from Africa, mm-hmm. which is an extremely exciting, possible new frontier for the music business. It's not only the music piece, but it's, again, that the convergence of the technology infrastructure being there to serve consumers in those markets, and then a payment infrastructure that will help, you know, for especially for markets where we've just seen rampant piracy being the kind of the currency. Once you have a mobile infrastructure, once you have a payment infrastructure, you could start to monetize these consumers in a way that's never been possible before. I mean, outside of, you know, physical product. Exactly. And that's where we see so much growth in this music tech industry that I was, you know, alluding to, because there's so much that people are doing that will solve those exact problems. You know, no one had done it before, but now the tech is there to truly make that happen. Right. Absolutely. So you also mentioned the shift from ownership to access, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of those things that sounds like really boring. (laughs) Like, oh, yeah, there was a shift from ownership to access. Like, you feel like, okay, all has all has been said. We just said that little sentence and, it's, and that's it. Right. But to me, that's like, it really blows the lid off the whole thing because, you know, the ownership model is like really finite if you think about it, right? It's just like you press a CD, the person buys a CD, they take the CD home. Right. Boom, the end. Like maybe some people were ripping CDs for their friends, you know, like you said in the beginning, maybe you're ripping CDs for other people. Right. But this access model completely changes the game because it suddenly opens up the idea of it's not just one retail point anymore. Like you can get access to music in so many more ways. I think it just like opens the horizon. Exactly. And I think there are other elements of it as well. Streaming does a couple of things that physical could never do. One, obviously, is the portability, which means that people are listening more than they ever were because they can listen in more places with more devices. Right. You know, one of the other elements is the ability for us to share our music with other people that are on the platform, whether they're friends or other listeners. The recommendation engine, where it used to be going into Tower Records and the recommendation engine was basically talking to a salesperson. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now you've got this, you've got artificial intelligence that's fueling the the recommendation engine. So there are just so many elements that are expansive when it comes to streaming that we just simply didn't have in the ownership model. Yeah. And something interesting that is in your blog post is it's a comparison of weekly music listening hours from 2010 to 2019. And one thing I see here is that AM FM broadcast was 45% in 2010 and it's 19% in 2019. And I think I would like you to speak to that a little bit because I feel like all of the charts that I've seen show that radio is still very strong in terms of listenership for the simple reason that it's so easy to get. You just 
push the button in your car, for example, and there it is. But, you know, do you think that this should be making radio a little nervous, the fact that it's declined that much in terms of, or, or that the other ways that people can consume music have increased so much? Let me talk to the other piece first. I think there's no doubt that the way that we're listening to music has changed an awful lot in the past couple of years. You know, part of that is facilitated by the devices that we can use with the amount of portability, with the amount of connection that we have to devices such as smart speakers and our our smartphones, and in other places as well. I mean, music streaming is available on your TV, on your Roku, on many other devices around the house. And I think the other key element is, I remember when I got a car in 2010, I bought a new car that year, I was surprised that it had an auxiliary port in it that I could plug in my phone if I wanted to listen to music. You know, that wasn't all that common. This past year, we've seen about 40% of people who are now streaming in the car. Oh, yeah. So, you know, with the evolution of the technology and the evolution of streaming, what you've seen is kind of a, a convergence between the two that's adding listening hours and shifting the way that people are listening to the benefit of streaming. You know, when it comes to AM, FM radio, look, the audience is still large, although the audience for streaming is now much larger. I think the issue with radio is if you think about the center stack in cars, as we get newer cars and the technology is better, it just gets so much easier to stream music. But I don't think the radio industry is entirely blind to that. They're starting to move a lot of their content onto podcasts. You can get a lot of the content on apps like radio.com or iHeart or TuneIn. And we all remember how much they took on Pandora as being sort of evil and not very important and not very useful. I think they've now come to the point a few years later that says, well, let's really dig in and figure out how do we have a digital profile that's going to maintain and and grow our audience. So I think things are starting to change from the the radio perspective. But for music, there's no question that, you know, just a couple of years ago, you know, streaming hours have have surpassed the amount of listening that people are doing on AM, FM radio. And it's particularly acute among younger people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the last topic I have that I want to talk about is this shift in the consumer mindset that you mentioned, because I really Mm -hmm. love that. I almost don't want to mention it. You know, I don't want to jinx it. Right. But there definitely was this time, I remember, where everybody was walking around saying, well, music should be free. Oh, and I remember... <laughs> you know, I, I, I was going to say, if I were probably at some of the NARM or music biz conferences, you know, that was what you would have heard a lot. Yeah. And yeah. a dozen years ago, music wants to be free, music is going to be free, et cetera, et cetera. I think... What's happened is, if you take a look, and this has really been driven by the paid streaming services, I think that the idea of on-demand has so dramatically changed the ethos, the zeitgeist of music consumers, really especially younger ones. I'll give you an interesting story. We were doing some focus groups in Nashville earlier this year with college students from Belmont, and we were talking with them about music piracy. And they looked at me like I had two heads. And some of them actually said, I don't understand why I would take the time to try to find something and download it and rip it when I could just go to Spotify and find it. Right, (laughs) right. 
Yeah. Well, exactly. The services have made it so convenient. So easy, right. Every time we ask, you know, why do you pay for this? Rises to the top. It's a really good value for the money. Right. They love the control of an on-demand experience. So if you keep lining up all of the features and benefits of on-demand streaming, consumers get it. And, and I think especially young consumers get it. So the same demographic that a decade or so ago we were saying, you know, they're all you're stealing music and they're bad. And, you know, fast forward and they've become our best customers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the convenience of it, I mean, you mentioned convenience, but also I think because it's personal too, it's like convenient, but it's also personal. So, you know, I think about my TV at home and, you know, if you turn on our Apple TV, you get this thing, it comes up and it shows you like Netflix and then there's Hulu right next to it. And then there's Disney plus, and then there's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all of these are subscription services that we really want to have because they have different content. They've got different stuff that we want and we're willing to pay for that. And then we feel like really good because we're like, I can go home and watch my crappy vampire show because I know it's on Netflix (laughs) because I have Netflix, you know? I think the one element that's different with streaming is that, believe it or not, (laughs) contrary to what we were talking about before, ownership still exists. It's just different. Well, right, right. But what I think some of us realized a couple of years ago is I may not own the physical product of a CD anymore, but I've assembled all of these playlists I've created this collection and it kind of imbues the same feeling that you had when you had, you know, a big record collection that you would carry around to friends' parties back in the day. Exactly. So I think that's another beautiful thing about music streaming is that we don't call it ownership anymore, but in a sense, it really is the same thing. Well, it feels the same for consumers. I think that's what it boils down to because that's how I feel too. I mean, I feel like, oh yeah, this is my stuff. You know, I've got my stuff here. And even though it's not physically on a shelf anymore. Right. And, and you know, now we're, we're right around the holidays. And if you've got, a, you know, your favorite holiday playlists or things that you've created your own library of, you, you can, you know, those are your go-tos. So the same reasons that we loved ownership, I think streaming has also been able to recreate that in the way that we can build our libraries and playlists. Absolutely. And I think there's also room for growth. You know, speaking to trends for 2020, I think there's room for growth in that because I think that we are, as consumers, now that we're hooked on this on the subscription model, there's room for innovation, right? There's room for new companies to pop up who are offering stuff in a new way. And I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a growth area. No, absolutely. And everybody needs to keep working on solving recommendation. One of, one of the problem with having an ocean of music is that you have an ocean of music. <laughs> right. And so it's despite the recommendation engines, despite maybe sharing playlists with our friends, it's still a lot to swim through. So it's going to be this ever enduring challenge to, you know, how do we keep making the experience better and better for the music consumers? But, you know, the interesting thing is because we asked we actually ask consumers, and and they're all really passionate about their particular streaming service. If you ask Spotify users, eight out of ten say that they absolutely love it. So I think that the experience, in addition to everything else, the experience and the connection that they have with this service is much more than you know just a, a utility. It really is a friendship with the service. Right. 
Definitely. I think that's right. I think it feels personal. Yeah. Well, Russ Krupnik from Music Watch, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What? You are most welcome, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Deerhoof, Shy Child, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Clark Buckner at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. See you next week. 